0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Essex Market. Essex Market is New York City's most historic public market, proudly located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Find the freshest produce, meat, fish, and specialty foods from over 30 unique vendors. Learn more about the market's family of small neighborhood businesses at EssexMarket.nyc.
2: We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
3: Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I am super excited to be here with you all. My name is Isra Chaker, and I lead Oxfam's migration and protection campaign. I'm a senior campaign lead based in the DC area, pretty exciting place given this past weekend. And I'm so happy to be welcoming this panel and this really timely opportunity for us to have this conversation. And so I wanna welcome my esteemed guests before I get started into introductions. I first wanted to make sure that you all had a couple of housekeeping announcements. This panel is being recorded and English closed captioning is available. You can find the closed caption button in your list of tools on Zoom if you need to activate that. Also, you can ask questions at any time during this entire uh, panel. We actually encourage questions here, but you go ahead and use the Q&A function and we'll do our best to get to everyone's question uh, in this panel and hopefully during the Q&A segment. And lastly, let's get started because I know if you're joining us on a Monday night, you are super excited to not hear me speak, but more hear our panelists who I'm really excited and honored to be with tonight and introduce. I already introduced myself, but just to explain a bit more about the migration and protection campaign at Oxfam, I manage a dynamic team that works to defend and support refugees, temporary protected status holders, asylum seekers, and anyone impacted by discriminatory policies like the Muslim bans, which personally impact me and my Syrian American family. And I'm excited to be part of this panel and want to thank our partners, first and foremost, Omnivore Books, Faden, and Snacky Tunes for bringing us all together today. Tonight, I'm joined by Darren and Greg Bresnitz, the co-founders. You can go ahead and wave. There they are, the two brothers, the co-founders and co-hosts of the music and food podcast Snacky Tunes. Their latest book project, Snacky Tunes Music is the Main Ingredient Chefs and Their Music is an extension of these soul-sustaining exchanges in which food and music seamlessly intertwine, which I can't wait to read and get to. We also are joined by Chef Preeti Mystery. if you also don't mind waving, perfect, Mm -hmm. is a James Beard-nominated chef author and activist based in Oakland and Sonoma country, California represent. And last but not least, we have Tao Win, is a Bay Area based singer songwriter and much respected activist whose recent release, Temple, is one of the best reviewed albums of 2020. So we have all of the amazing components for an amazing panel. We have chefs, we have authors and podcast hosts, and we have a singer songwriter Completely amazing. I wanna get right in and actually start by just checking on how you are doing. Given you know everything that's happened this past weekend, it would be great if you wanted to share just any first thoughts and reflections for how you're coming into the space today. Please, whoever wants to jump in, go for it.
4: Chef? Uh, uh, relief. It's yeah. like uh, you let the pressure cooker, uh, Release all that steam after five years. It's I, I, look. I know this sounds boring, but I was driving today and listening to NPR, and it was just normal uh, NPR people talking about how the president to be is putting together a scientific-backed, you know, panel and uh, experts to talk about the COVID relief, and I was like. This is the Super Bowl halftime show. I've never been more excited to hear this. Like, crank it up. You know, more Eliasson. Absolutely amazing. It just, it's like, no, the bar has been put so low that just yeah. NPR Monday morning is like the concert of the new millennium. Love it, love <laughs>
3: it. You want to hear the news now.
4: Uh, yeah. <laughs> Good yeah, news. To jump in? Good
5: news. I feel like, I mean, I wear... Uh, like one of those bite guards at night because I grind my teeth and for some random reason for the last two nights, I've just forgotten to put it in my mouth before I go to bed (laughs) and I'm not grinding my jaw at all. It's like the weirdest thing ever. I'm just like, really? Like everything's totally fine. Like I think that many people are starting to realize how much just this sort of underlying anxiety um, and negativity Um, has affected everything in how they move through the world. So I think that just that like sigh of relief um, isn't just here, it's like a physical thing, which I think is gonna be hopefully a wonderful relief for
4: all of us.
3: Uh, I hear you, I feel that too. Anyone else wanna feed in?
4: Greg? I'm a new father. I have like a nine and a half month old daughter. And uh, I was like afraid what it was, I'd have to explain to her when she began to understand things about like how people can get away with things. And it feels really good to have, I think like the, the biggest thing about this, cause uh, my wife and I are, are in the South right now. It's like, I want to make a clear distinction about not being against Republicans, but just being against immoral people as leaders. And I think like there's a clear distinction uh, about that type of, under and like being here and having to understand like what, understanding why someone like that can get to the White House, but also understanding that it was never about that. It was just like, that is just a bad example as a human who should be leading us. And watching Biden just have full sentences and talk about plans and science and logic and reason and like bedrock (laughs) morals, you're just like, oh, Oh, yeah, I forgot. This is like I'm like kind of not bored by the president, but like th- this should just be like kind of steady. So I'm excited. I will say one one other thing is that, like, in the days when they weren't calling the election, it was the longest that Trump had been off the major networks. And I was like, this is the most calm we've had in four years because they couldn't cover him because they chose to finally not cover him for lying. And I was like, oh, this is what it used to be like. You used to not have to tune in every night and hear nonsense and just like anger. So I, I think, chef, I think that's probably why you're not grinding your teeth. You don't have this psychic warfare going on.
2: Right, exactly. <laughs> um, I, uh, I second uh, all that came before. And, uh, you know, when we logged on, I asked everyone if that had actually happened because I think we've been, oh God, the efforts are just the constant, work of overcoming the latest thing and trying to figure out you know you you try to portion out your energy so that you can address what you can but then also continue the life that you you know the livelihood that you have to pursue the family that you take care whatever all those other things and um and so you develop this muscle unfortunately that can't hold anything good or has to, you have to push through everything bad. And so it's just so nice to take a moment and celebrate and, and believe that the thing is good and that it's here.
3: Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you all so much for just sharing where you're at as people, as you know, Americans, as also part of the background and expertise in which you sit, it's really important, I think, to hear how many of your messages resonate, probably with a lot of people listening to this call, if not everyone. And you know, from Oxfam's side in particular, we congratulate President-elect Joe Biden and his hard-fought election victory to be the next president of the United States. But we also call on him to deliver on a bold new agenda that yes. takes... To scale fighting against in- stru- structural injustices of poverty and inequality and immediate action on climate change. So, you know, as Oxen, we were talking about this a little bit before we joined the big room and the audience, we were talking about how much work is just going to start beginning and how much we still need to do and a lot of people are saying the work has just begun and me as an activist and organizer I say the work has been going on and now we're going to kick it into overdrive but we as Oxfam, urge president like Biden to urgently follow through on his campaign promises and to work with Congress to enact a transformational COVID-19 recovery plan that puts an end to the pandemic, saves the economy, and tackles the root causes of economic inequality that have been severely exacerbated by the crisis, as well as getting the US back on track to fight against poverty, inequality and climate change overall. We have a lot more issues that we work on as Oxfam, but that is super in line with what we're talking about today. So I wanted to start off by saying that uh, where we stand and a really good check-in. So thank you for feeding in there. I want to get right into the questions here. Mm -hmm. For years, Oxfam has partnered with creative allies, including chefs, musicians, writers, to call out injustice. We know firsthand the power in art to transform hearts and minds. What is it about food and music that make them such effective community builders? And why is it that there is such mutual respect between chefs and music artists? Anyone can start us off. Uh, I think you have a good flow between you all, so I don't wanna have to choose somebody.
5: I mean, I guess I'll start uh, and say, uh, you know, food is culture and music is culture. And I think that you know, we can either look back at these times when a lot of us were younger and we were made fun of for the food and music that came out of our homes, or we can you know, be like the grown adults that we are now and teach our kids something different which is what we all do with each other which is like oh my god where are you from and let me taste some of that food and what kind of music do you listen to and i want to hear that and i think that there's something innate in wanting to share your culture especially in a country with so many immigrants like america um, but all over the world you know what i mean it's like you go to other countries what do we go to do I, i don't know maybe other people do something else I sit on a beach, but I, I go to the restaurants. I, I want to hear the music. I want to go to you know see live music. I want to go to see art. Like Those are the things that make a community and a culture what it is. So I feel like there's an immediate connection. And it's also a way to immediately share something. Someone meets you and they go, oh, I've never met someone from India before. You can you know, play a song, you can give them a plate of food or just a snack or taste of something. And it immediately gives them this whole different experience of who you are. And I feel like that's something for me that I've always like wanted to share. Um, I'll tell you guys a funny story. When we went to a fancy restaurant of a friend of mine, we were on top chef together, like a decade ago, um, in Ann Arbor. And my, so my parents live in Ohio and, um, the three of us went there and even though we were going to her restaurant of course my parents were like well we need to bring something and my mom had just made these dokra, which are like a steamed uh, lentil cake and uh so you know we had this like 10 course meal that she made us and she made it all like vegetarian for my mom and all this stuff Um, And they had a great time and it opened their eyes. My dad had scallops for the first time. At the same time, like everybody kept coming back from the back of the house and the servers going, are you the ones who brought those steamed cakes? (laughs) And just praising my mother in this like fancy tasting menu restaurant. And so I think it was like, it's like that immediate thing of like, you're giving me something, I want to share something from my culture, whether that's music or it's food or art. Um, I think it's, it's about getting to know each other and understanding each other, seeing the differences and appreciating those uniquenesses and also seeing the similarities.
2: Totally, I, Thank yeah. Thank you, Chef. Um, I agree with everything uh, that Chef said. And also, uh, yeah, I mean, just, you know, these are two things that are, that most readily transcend language and most readily can be offered as a welcoming, um, and I think that's why both are so um, powerful and uh, and and deployed so widely. Beautiful, Greg. I think, anyone oh,
3: else? Greg, do you want to go? No, you can go, Darren. I was think, Greg, Darren, Darren, Greg.
4: <laughs> Growing up, uh, I music to us, we saw as a real Uh, powerful voice we would go to shows and festivals like sky against racism which you know to us showed the power of music for our generation you go back for every generation for centuries and music has always been an activist cry and now food has really hit that activist and powerful thing i think what you've seen a lot in the you know post-covid era is a lot of people who have either lost their restaurants because the government hasn't helped them and have turned to their own heritage and doing smaller pop-ups, very focused food, either from Bahamian or from like Ghana or India or things like that. And you're seeing a real voice, a real power through message saying like, this is me, this is who I am, this is the food I'm cooking. And it shares a real, you know, defiant point. You're not looking anymore to, there's no central restaurant culture anymore it's been so dispersed and decimated um, that people are reclaiming it for themselves. And I will say one story is that when I was in college, uh, Greg and I went to Boston University and I would go, to, uh, I believe to Tufts where there was an Oxfam cafe. And we would go there and see music and we would get food when we had like, you know, very lean pockets. And that to me, always me that like, you give people a place for entertainment, you give people a place to get food, you treat them like you humanity, you don't look at them in any other way than just another human. And that goes a long way. Love that. Thank think- you for
3: sharing that, Darren.
4: And to your question about, like, what is the connection between musicians and chefs, um, we figured we found this over the years the the show, the podcast was originally just like there's a food segment and a music segment. Um, and after doing the podcast for 11 years, what we found is that chefs and musicians are really the same people. Um, they want to connect with other humans um, in ways, and I, and I guess Tao this maybe is not totally relevant because you're also a lyricist, but music and food are both kind of in, you know, nonverbal ways of com- communication and connecting with other people. Um, and sometimes even lyrics, when you maybe don't listen to the words as much, but the way that voice is used as a way that like certain spices are used as accents or layers on top of dishes, uh, it allows for people to be able to find this way. Um, and I think in the way that when you perform intimate shows and you have dinner service, you're able just to really identify with the person across from you and touch them in ways that transcends language. And that was only something that we really understood after many years of doing the show. I mean, like, wait, did, was it a chef or musician who gave us that answer before? This is interesting. And that was kind of like what, um, we also found within the book that, you know, most chefs first love was music or first identifier was music. Um, and then it sprung from there. So I think maybe it's not as totally recognized as it should be, but, you know, chefs and musicians are connecting with people on such a different level through in with intangible values, through tangible connections that there's just this unspoken bond in the way that they do it.
2: Mm-hmm, totally. And I wanted to revisit Darren's point about me, you know, um, the relationship between chefs and musicians and the restaurant industry and the music industry in this particular moment. Mm. And I, you know, I've given, I've been a part of panels or discussions around the future of the music industry and what's happened and how it's been decimated. And I've taken such inspiration um, and motivation from the way restaurateurs and different people within the the food industry have have responded to this and I, I i feel very strongly that both industries uh live music and food um are facing obviously a, a lot of this uh the same struggle and have historically been navigating within that extremely narrow thin margin and if anything goes wrong you're Done. You know, it's such a precarious position, and it's um, under-funded, underappreciated in, you know, at the at uh, at state and federal levels. Um, but the way people in food have been adapting and figuring out how to survive has been um, really inspiring for for musicians like myself.
4: You know, we. Um finished this book in about April, May of this year. And every restaurant in this book is an independent restaurant. And many, not many, but we're starting to see more and more restaurants that have been listed or chefs in this book have closed up shop. And the sad thing is, is that it means so much to so many people on so many different levels, whether it's just spiritual or connectivity But financial, I mean, you look at the numbers and what these restaurants do. I mean, Pretty, I know that you and so many of your chefs feed communities, you know, like charity work has become such a big part of it. And so when these independent restaurants start disappearing, you start losing a hub. And, you know, a lot of times these people are working with food banks and they're donating their time and their celebrity and how you're the same way. And it's just like, if you lose this community, it's more than just going out to eat and going to see his shows. You are losing a place where people can support other people. And it has taken so long to get to this point with restaurants and independent venues and artists. And it is going to take a long time to come back if people do not step in and save these industries. And you are seeing it every day restaurants closing and charities losing money and there's just like look we can put all the free fridges and we can buy all the merch in the world but at a federal level you need to support this billion dollar industry on both sides
5: and darren, well, darren uh, oh go ahead, Jeff. I'll go ahead Jeff. i was gonna say i mean i think that that's something that like i mean i feel like i've been saying this for years um yeah. i was very fortunate that um i had closed both my restaurants and um in 2018 Um, I was about to work on a consulting project opening another restaurant, which I didn't end up doing (laughs) Um, and isn't happening. Um, And then I was opening my own places, which is currently totally on hold. But I think that also like the thing about it is that like both music and food, like first of all, you need food literally to like live. And Mm -hmm. I would tend to say that even though, yes, you wouldn't like die, uh, we need music. (laughs) every culture you know creates music and and so I think there's also a thing when you talk about like venues and restaurants it's like there was a point in our like world where you know people only cooked for themselves and for their community and made music with their community um and Where's that point where you're like, okay, not everybody knows how to play the guitar or cook themselves a meal. And where those things that are so important in our life become not seen by the government, to your point, Darren, um, as important where, you know, whether it's who's gotten a bailout. Um, you know, fast food chains, um, which I'm not totally knocking, honestly, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of folks that that's the only food they can afford. um, And they don't have time to cook because they're working. Um, But ultimately, these large businesses getting all these tax breaks, it's no different than it was before the pandemic, you know, it was Twitter getting this huge tax break. But why do people come to San Francisco and Oakland? I mean, yes, some come for business to work at the Twitter building. But Why do they, you know, why is Oakland the new spot everybody wants to go to? It's the music, it's the culture, it's the restaurants, it's the art, like those are the reasons. And yet the government does absolutely nothing to incentivize us. And yet they give Twitter, this company with so much money, this massive tax break just to open up their headquarters there. So I think that when you look at like, you know, when people talk about, Uh, the amount of money that is being lost in San Francisco and Oakland right now because of the lack of tourism Um, how many conventions that feed all of those restaurants and music venues and uh, and also musicians that are performing at these events um, privately um, all of that is not supported in any real way because as you say Darren it's mostly all independent people. So it's not like this one company, boom, you give them this tax break, it it has this effect. It's like all of these individuals that you have to somehow like access. I don't think it's actually that hard. Um, But I I do think that maybe what I felt even pre the pandemic will finally like kind of sink in for more and more people that independent restaurants like musicians like these are things that we need in our world and when we're in this place where we're actually lacking those things maybe we have a moment with COVID to like realize what is really important to us and that these things are super important and we can't let them fail and we can't let the folks that create these beautiful things in our culture uh not be supported
3: Yeah, that was so great. Thank you all for your insightful thoughts. And that kind of leads us perfectly into the second question, which is COVID-19 has profoundly impacted our food systems. Millions of people around the world are being pushed into hunger. The entire food industry has faced a seismic change, which you already hinted on, all of you. And food and farm workers have become frontline essential workers. How has COVID impacted your relationship with food? and what effects are you seeing in other communities? I know Chef, you were just talking about Oakland in particular in San Francisco. Did you wanna add anything to this question and and then I'll open up the floor to anyone else?
5: Yeah, actually, um, I mean, there's a lot of things. One thing is I'm actually not in Oakland right now, even though I'm always repping Oakland. Um, uh, I'm actually about an hour and a half north up in Sonoma County in the Redwoods. um, And we've been here since March. And uh, long story, we bought this house last year, Got rid of the rental in Oakland, um, and so we're up here for the unseeable foreseeable future. What that also meant was back in April, um, I actually started working at a small organic farm that was owned by friends of mine, and I've had the opportunity to get more uh, stuck in with uh, farm work. Um, when I first started working, I was the only person on the farm except for the couple that owned the farm. Um, one who was a photographer, but all her business was gone because of the lockdown. And so it was me and the photographer and the farmer, a <laughs> bunch of 40 something lesbians farming. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I feel like it's it's in the same way that I've had the opportunity to kind of connect more deeply with what food and where it comes from and how it's grown. And uh, I mean, I've always worked with small farms and small farmers. This was just an opportunity to go a lot deeper um, and and physically be there working and learn a tremendous amount um I think that everybody has connected more deeply with cooking and food whether they're making sourdough or what have you it's like everybody's like you know having to figure a lot of stuff out and I figure I feel like there's a, a different level of connection to what food means to a lot of folks
2: you know I gotta um I hope you all don't mind if I hop in next, but, um, and chef and I didn't plan this, but I, cause I don't think, you know, but so, so I, uh, Isra, your question about how are we more connected? So I, to the, to our food supply, I've always subscribed to this one CSA, but then I'd been on the wait list for actually the, for the farm that. Uh, Chef Preeti works at oh now. yeah Radical Family Farms yeah Radical I, I, we can say their name okay so hey, Radical can Family name, Farms yeah. because yeah. they're yeah I mean I heard about them they're amazing and they specialize in um, Asian heritage um, produce is that right is that fair to say and, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're queer owned queer run and um, so i I will say two CSA subscriptions is a bit much, <laughs> and it's it gets a little stressful, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity um, to support and also to, to be cooking with, with these ingredients that I, it, it, you know, it's hard to get, it's hard to source, and they remind me so much of growing up and the food that I grew up with, and I'm, you know, connecting more with my mom around recipes, so. That's so awesome.
5: I'm so excited (laughs) that you've been getting the CSA boxes. I
2: love it. I love it. We can talk more about that later. Yeah.
5: yeah. When we actually (laughs) hang out socially and not just be on panels (laughs) together.
4: I would say on the other side of it. um, So I have been in New York the last 15 years until COVID. um, And now I am in Lafayette, Louisiana, where my wife is family from and um, where the hurricanes have just like ripped through here, but it's not like an equal opportunity destruction. Um, it's of course, neighborhoods, of people underneath the poverty line, um, BIPOC communities. And what's really sad is that, uh, the media is really good at covering the lead up and the destruction, right? Like they're really good at that. I've never felt more people reach out to me and be like, are you okay? And I was like, we're 40 miles away, which is a very significant thing. But no one is really talking about the recovery. Uh, no one is talking about the damage. Um, it was done during like the. It's still hot down here. It's really hot today. It was like shorts weather. It's still really humid. So when these, when people lost power, um, they lost, you know, they lost the refrigeration, um, and it just kind of disappeared. So watching people who are already on the edge, um, and then we're like very good fodder for ratings but not really good fodder for um relief is pretty amazing like it was just today that i think zeta was the most recent that lafayette parish father parish has finally got relief from one of the things but like they're still waiting cleanup is so good the cleanup crews are gone so i think seeing how the pandemic pushes people plus global warming pushes people on the edge already over the edge and then forgotten about um, It's been pretty amazing to see like just how quickly to it and something that I was completely ignorant to while living in New York City and you just kind of see it's like, these people just feel abandoned um, due to this and and no one one is coming to help them because it's not a, a good story.
2: Essex Market is a
1: food lover's paradise, with over 30 unique vendors selling everything from one-of-a-kind spices to daily grocery staples, and even scratch-made prepared foods. At HRN, we believe that buying from local purveyors is one of the best ways to support an equitable food system. That's why this holiday season we'll be shopping from the vendors at Essex Market. Not only are their offerings fresh and delicious, they're also affordable and sold by a community of passionate small business owners. This connection is what has made Essex Market a stalwart in New York City's food landscape for the last 80 years. Now located in a brand new building, Essex Market continues to be one of the most unique food experiences in New York. At Essex Market, you'll find Lower East Side locals shopping for plantains and avocados, alongside visitors browsing freshly baked bread and locally produced cheeses. If this gets you hungry, order from one of the market's many prepared food vendors, serving up dishes from Peru, Thailand, Morocco, and beyond. Learn more and shop online for local same and next day delivery at essexmarket.nyc.
3: I wanted to really focus on, on women specifically because women do play a vital role in producing our food around the world and in the food industry here in the U.S., At Oxfam, we think women must be included in any decisions about how we revamp our food systems, but we still have a long way to go, which I think a lot of your commentary has already proven that and spoken to that. Where are you seeing women making strides in the food industry and what work still needs to be done?
5: Well, I mean, I feel like first and foremost, like it's kind of a ridiculous thing, right? Like women are traditionally the people who have been cooking in households and communities for like since the beginning of like time um and yet for some reason as as soon as you you know put on a white jacket and get this big knife it's this like really male thing um and uh i would say that the same is also true to maybe not as disproportionate um is in farming And, and and one thing that i um not just because of my recent experience but even prior um have seen a lot more women uh going into farming and being interested in going into farming which i think is a super important part of the food system because when we just like stop it you know it's sort of like getting deeper right so it's like oh we'll let you be in pastry and salads (laughs) and it's like no i want to work the grill um i want to be the executive chef um and then saying okay i have this great restaurant and i'm the chef and i'm the owner and i get all this great produce from all of these guy farmers um but saying no i want to be the farmer i want to learn more about this i want to do this um i mean from my understanding the the largest amount there's i believe there's a higher percentage of women at culinary institute of america um, and in culinary schools across the country and i think also there's a larger percentage of women um young women in terms of young farmers, it's, it's more women. Um, So I see that really shifting things because I think that when we get out of just, you know, making pastries and writing about food, um, but actually growing it um, and then being in charge of it, I think that that's where you see a lot of change. The other thing I see, which I think is being uh, somewhat uh, having a positive, sort of boost because of COVID is people sort of moving more towards uh, more simple comfort food. And, um, you know, I mean, I, for those of you who know me (laughs) or for those of you who don't, like, I am not a huge fan of fine dining. Um, I kind of think it's bullshit. Um, And so for me, I feel like, you know, fine dining has really shown during this time that it is clearly not essential. Um, but do you want to get that stack of tortillas and that pound of carnitas and that quart of beans and that quart of guacamole and chips and salsa? Yes, to feed your family. So I think that the way that we start looking at food as a people and understanding like in through this process of COVID, there's been this extreme, like people are just like, I want that comfort. I want that thing. I want that like this, you know, I bring it up again, like this focus on sourdough. It's like bread, like fucking bread. Like the thing that is the most basic sort of you know, square one of what creates a cuisine, whether that's a loaf in this case, because it's, you know, we're talking about America and sort of European focus, or you're talking about flatbreads or all kinds of breads, like that is like, you know, whether it's breads or rice, it's sort of like the foundation of any cuisine and people focusing on those like basic essentials. Um, and, and see, and finding comfort in that and finding, because ultimately food is about nourishment and it's about joy. It's about pleasure. And, and it's also about nourishment. Like we need it to live, but, uh, you know, the sort of smoke and mirrors and smoked mackerel hanging from a wire with some essential oils floating up, like nobody's like, Oh, I really wish we could do that again you know I don't hear that from anyone like I mean maybe it's just because I don't talk to folks like that um but and and I'm not saying like people don't like nice things and that I don't like nice things like I'm I'm not talking about like zuni I'm talking about like super fine dining um things that go beyond nourishment and are really just about an experience or a performance if you will um that costs an exorbitant amount that don't really, you know, you might end up going to In-N-Out on your way home. Um, I personally go to those restaurants and I'm just like halfway through. I'm like, I can't eat anymore. I'm full. Why do I have to eat all this food? Um, So I think that in a lot of ways, it's really just about like getting more back to like this essential place of what we really crave. Um, And I feel like this moment is really suited to women in the food industry because you know, and not to say that there aren't women who cook fine dining, but if you look at sort of the scale, I would say, you know, there's a few women in fine dining, whereas there's a lot of women chefs who are cooking with, you know, everything from like the sort of Zuni mid-range quality bistro meal, that's very nourishing to, you know, your taco truck um, situation like uh, that spectrum. And I feel like that's the spectrum that people are like, this is what I'm craving. This is what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, and it makes sense because women are who have traditionally fed our communities, mm-hmm. plain and simple.
3: That's completely true chef. I think about my own mom, like my entire experience of cooking and like food, I'm not a chef. I'm not very good. I mean, I'm pretty good at Middle Eastern dishes. I'm not good at other dishes to cook them, but it's all through my mom. And I remember my mom, there have been different parts of life where she's catered for our community. She's helped community out with food. So it's so important to even tell the stories of our generation, our home countries uh, through food. So uh, yeah, women are essential. They are the core of that. Did anyone else want to feed into this question?
4: Yeah, so I, I'll take it from a media coverage side and an award side. Um, so there's really two issues I still see, uh, and I say this completely aware that I am a Jewish straight white male. And so if I misspeak or say the wrong thing, you know, it's still an education process. So, you know, one of the biggest stories that came out in the last two weeks was the master sommeliers of America about how there was an unbelievable amount of decades of sexual harassment and, um, you know, more than just harassment, like assault and things like that. And you're talking about one of the toughest, hardest career choices. It's very niche. And one of the most the saddest things beyond the actual harassment itself were women who said, I don't want to follow this career. Like these men that hold the power are keeping me from following my dreams. And I was like, could you imagine in this day and age, I mean, you can, and I say this, but just like to dedicate your life to this and then saying like one guy who probably doesn't even remember what he did because he was drunk. And this is nothing new in this industry or even the restaurant industry and it as a whole. And that would throw someone's life off balance. Like, it just, it's just, it's nuts. And then on the compendium side of that is, I can't even remember which, maybe it was like, I can't remember which chef award international that released names this year, but it was nuts. Because if you looked at it, it was all white men from around the world. I think there was two white women. And it was just like, and I wrote them. I, I commented, I wrote them. I was like, how the fuck are you even thinking that this is okay right now? Like, how are you this tone deaf? And I know that is a huge issue with San Pellegrino and James Beard Award. You know, that's a whole other topic. And so, the idea that this is the crazy part like, this isn't out of the conversation anymore. Like, so much of women and representation and, and what is considered pretty sort of what you said, like fine dining, like, how is that still setting at the center of the awards when so many of things are not really like the best conversations are not around fine dining, right? Like, no one's. I mean, I, I, res- I get it and I respect it at some level, but like, that's not what calls to me, especially not during this time. And to see misogyny and to see racism at some level and to be like, well, if you can't afford fresh linens every two days, then you don't get that fourth star. It's like, what the fuck does that even, who cares about that? And you know, we have done our part as Snacky Tunes. I'm not saying we're the solution, but like the book and the radio show and the things like that, like we have done our best to do re- representation Cause that's like the power that we have to do it. But again, it's like, we are, we are one little thing. Like that is not enough. Like there are systematic things and not to go back to COVID, but like maybe this complete breakdown and this eye on the restaurant industry and the music industry, take a breath and go like, what is wrong? So that when we come back, we are not just going back to this old guard of all these problems. And maybe that is the silver lining here, but to see this stuff still existing and to people know that it's part of the conversation and still going, I don't care. Like, I'm still gonna harass. I'm still gonna pay people less. I'm still not gonna promote. Like, it doesn't make, it's it's insane because I don't think most people who eat and who actually want that are okay with that anymore.
2: You know, one thing um, that you just reminded me of it, which I've drawn, again, I draw, uh, a great amount of inspiration from what happens in the food world, but what happened with Bon Appetit and um, the the you know so many of the people who were making those food videos but not getting paid, like uh, Priya Krishna and um, forgive me I don't know I don't know them well enough to know all their names but the, I I know that the steps that they took um, to leave and to say. Even you know, even after um, Adam Rappaport left, and and you know they're trying to to reorganize and figure out how to justly pay people and compensate them, and then it still it it was it uh, that that accommodation fell short, and um, the ferocity of the people who were just like. Fuck it, I'm out. You don't deserve what I can do, and now um, and they've now they're being valued for their work at the level w- with which they should be valued, and have found different opportunities, um, you know, with their own channels or whatever they're doing, you know, in different um, writing assignments with the Times or whatever. But it's, it, it was so remarkable to see and how, um, how vocal they were and how very clear mm-hmm. that their language was in leaving. Um, I
5: think this is silver lining too in a lot of ways because I think that like for me I felt like the system is broken and hasn't worked for a lot of folks for a long time if it ever did. Mm -hmm. Um, and this moment has really opened a lot more people's eyes to like a lot of the injustices and, you know, the kind of biases that, you know, people like me are like, "Mm, I kind of assume that, but other people were like, Oh no, it couldn't be like, they have a whole process. Like, I'm sure they're good people. And I'm like, okay. And now it's like, see, I've told you, (laughs) I told you. But at least like more people are getting it, whether it's seeing like Thomas Keller suck up to Trump or like Danny Meyer come out with this, like fine people on both sides statement yesterday or what have you. I think that you're seeing a lot and 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 the ratio of people that it's not just about like, there's gonna be people like me who are always gonna be like hella skeptical and like on the left that are just like, okay, I see you. But like, there's many people that are fooled by these layers of like white men's charm and money and affluence and, um, you know, lip service of equality. Um, and I think in this moment, in the last few months, you've really started to see a lot of people just be like, hey, Thomas Keller, like you were my hero and I don't think so anymore or unfollow or I don't need to go to your place or you know, whatever where a lot of folks are opening their eyes to the fact that these people that they have put on these pedestals are not so great. And in fact, the way that they were able to get to where they are is at the detriment of so many women and BIPOC folks, queer folks, that, you know, and and then there's folks like you are saying, Tao, that are like, I'm not going to do this anymore and I'm not going to keep, you know, getting paid less than these folks. And I think that also is is because of this moment and people just feeling like I'm fed up, like I'm not going to keep putting up with this. Like, this is the ultimate like, you know, we all had it like right after Trump got elected. We all had it when Brett Kavanaugh got, you know, on the Supreme Court, those moments where you're like, not today. Not today. Do not mess with me today. <laughs> but I feel like this moment, COVID has really pushed a lot more people to really see like, oh, wow, they really don't care about us at all.
4: I think I, I do want to give one, like there's always like darkness in this, but I think one, I, you always look for like educational.
5: Sorry. No, no, no,
4: no. I mean, it is, there's darkness. So like five years ago, um, uh, I, the, I used to work for a company. We were the co-host for Food Book Fair, and it was a panel. Five people on the panel. Two of the people on the panel were Mary Batali and Ken Friedman. It's 2015. If you are not aware, they were two of the most heinous people of all time. Um, and the topic of the panel was about recognition in um, recognition for essentially cultural appropriation. And my mom was there. And they, and all the people on the panel, not everyone on the panel, like there was like a NYU NYU, uh, NYU professor and everything. And the people on the right side of history were saying like, cite your sources. We're not even saying like, you know, give money to the people you're taking from. But if you're a white person doing Chinese food, like just say that you didn't grow up with this and someone taught you and maybe someone will want to discover. Um, It was around the same time when like two white women went down to Mexico and like stole recipes from Mexican women, then got run out of Portland which was like, awful. So I was like, yeah, cite your sources. My mom was like, I'm not sure about this, you know, kind of takes away from the meal. And my mom is like amazing school teacher. And so we've had like a five year debate about this. Like it's been like an ongoing type of thing. And just recently the New York Times started citing its sources. It's incredible. They kind of came, I think it was about a month ago or maybe two months ago where Sam Sifton was like you know what we didn't come up with all these recipes a lot of them are adapted here's the original person here's the adaption it takes away nothing if you want to learn from them go learn from them and took away nothing I showed it to my mom and she was like this is correct this is this this is absolutely correct and just yesterday she texted me she's signing up for Biden's task force she's like getting involved she she's like getting amongst it. you know, She's been like a reading school teacher, uh, reading school specialist her entire life. And I think that when you see these kind of movements change, you kind of understand these things, you see this kind of arc, you get to see people who find these entry points now that maybe felt either didn't know that they needed to look for an entry point or felt embarrassed or didn't know how to get in. And now I think what we're seeing is there's enough time to be like, you know what, I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna say the wrong things, I'm gonna be ignorant, but I'm gonna be okay with that because I'm gonna learn, and I'm gonna do the reading and I'm gonna use my position and, and, and show up.
3: That's really powerful. And on that point of activism, thank you all for sharing your thoughts. Tao, I have a question for you. In Interview Magazine, you said, quote, I think I'm more effective as an activist if I stay in music, to be honest. Music, the way it reaches people and transcends divisions, is a really effective and powerful forum, end quote. What's been the most powerful experience you've had combining your music and activism? Um, I don't really,
2: that's funny. I just don't remember saying that, but I I don't disagree with it. Um, (laughs) I-
3: Love it, love it.
2: (laughs) I think the most powerful moment for me with music, And what's funny, what gives me pause is that it wasn't necessarily this platform that I believe music gives me versus um, me being more on the front lines of activism and organizing. I will say that I can't be on the front lines because I don't have the constitution for it. And my admiration for organizers and activists who are called to do it and do it so well are the reason we are anywhere good, I have endless respect and um, so I'll say that. uh, So with music, um, the moment that comes to mind is um, in 2013, I released a record called We the Common and it was written in tribute to the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. And one of the songs, the, the title track, uh, the lead single off the record is called We the Common for Valerie Bolden. And it was inspired in part by my, the first visit um, that I ever made to, um, to a state prison. And I was working with an adv- advocacy group. So I, I um, was able to meet with several people inside um, throughout the day. And it was just the, the experience was something I, I, it would be too much to go into because it was just so overwhelming on every level. Um, But uh, so I ended up writing this song and I brought my banjo to a protest. Um, We were protesting, well, there's a ton of things to protest within the, California Correctional System, Uh, but what it was, um, it, that particular protest was about medical oversight and what was happening, uh, just really egregious um, response and neglect of, of uh, incarcerated people, and we were situated such that people inside could hear us, and we had come to the, the prison with family members of those who were inside. And I remember playing that song "We the Common," which I'd played a ton before. I played it on tour all over. We put, you know, we made a music, uh, whatever. you do You perform that song a lot when it's the lead single from the record. But that is by far the most um, poignant, most meaningful experience I've had with music and what. What kind of service it can be? What kind of vehicle you can, you know, what what you can, um, what service you can be um, as a person who plays music.
3: That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Tao, for sharing that. Uh, one more question before we go into the audience Q and A. I know that we're a little tight on time, but this next question is for Chef. In your Time article, I'm a Queer Brown Immigrant Chef, you wrote, quote, as a Queer Brown Immigrant Chef, I have no interest in backing down. Revolutions were not staged without making someone uncomfortable. Rights were not gained by accepting the status quo. When we Mm -hmm. speak up, we do so because we are full of optimism. End quote. How have you been able to sustain this optimism? We've heard a lot about, honestly, I think really insightful thoughts on the current state of everything today and hopefully the shift that's going to be coming in the food industry right. that's already right. happened as well as the music industry. But where are you at with this optimism?
5: Well, I mean, of course this weekend was a huge boost in optimism. <laughs> I mean, we all are feeling breathing a little bit easier. Um, And I think that first and foremost, uh, I actually, uh, I got a Facebook memory yesterday, which was the date of the uh, election four years ago. Um, And uh, it reminded me that four years ago, I taught a cooking class with a bunch of mostly all black youth um, in Oakland, and um, we had a great time. And I remember like afterwards, you know, then I went home and we saw the election results start to come in and it was like, oh, God, this is like the worst night ever. And just thinking about like these young people and, you know, looking at the 18 to 29 vote. And I I think I posted the photo and said something like, you know, and if this is our future I know that we're going to be okay no matter what happens with this election and I think that that is really true because you know the way that young people have come out uh, all around the country uh, it has been so impressive and you know it makes me emotional um and so I feel like first and fo- foremost like I see the optimism in our youth um I see the optimism in The way that it's, it's like, like, I mean, it's the millennials, but also Gen Z's just like, Hey, move over. Like millennials, like some of them are like, I'm jaded. I'm angry. Gen Z's just like, let's do this. (laughs) TikTok We're going to take you down. (laughs) They're creative. um, And they understand the concept really of like the, the way that you can, like, whether it's because of social media or what the way that if you can get the numbers and out ratio somebody, Um, you can really make a difference and and change something, whether you look at, k-pop and what they did or what the kids did with the uh, the Republican convention uh, all these different things like it, it's really impressive to me I think the youth is just like so much optimism I think the other optimism I have is like I always have optimism because like I'm in Oakland I'm in the Bay Area and my community has always been fighting we didn't just start fighting in 2016 we didn't just start saying black lives matter in June of 2020 like we've been doing this all along it's always been a part of who we are we you know we we pick each other up we hold each other's hands we say you know what can we do how can i help you and so i always feel optimism because i feel like i am in a community whether you're talking about just oakland or you're talking about the chef community um or the small business community um in the bay area that doesn't wait around for government bailouts they just like Roll up their sleeves and start helping. Um, so, so I feel like overall a lot of optimism, but definitely, yeah, this weekend gave us. Hella optimism.
3: <laughs> we needed, And I agree with you, I think the root of optimism for all of us is really community and where we stand with that. So shifting into the audience q and A, I I I love hearing all your thoughts, but we need to be as brief as possible so that we can get through these questions for people online. I'm gonna first start off with a question for Tao. Tao, someone wrote, as a Vietnamese American, I want to tell her Uh, I think she wrote thank you very much in Vietnamese. She's been such an icon to folks like me. What advice would she give young Vietnamese Americans who are looking to get involved in activism, but are worried about what their parents or family might say?
2: Thank you. I'll try to be brief as possible, but this questions like these typically uh, I end up crying and I'll probably have to ask for your email to further explain, Um, I would say, don't deny yourself your truth and don't deny yourself your heritage. And if you keep pushing forward, the two shall meet and you can live fully.
3: So beautiful. That's so beautiful. Thank you, Tao. And thank you. That was really brief. So I really appreciate it. But that's, I think that a lot of different communities can relate to that. Um, A lot of different people from different backgrounds. Beautifully said, thank you for that. Question for Darren and Greg, how does music and food come into advancing progressive and within progressive anti-systemic racism, counter abusive policing, et cetera, actions and movements under a Biden presidency in your opinion?
4: be as succinct as possible. Yeah. Also that, a yeah. question was not yeah. very brief. That's yeah. Broad <laughs> question. Um I think that they can act as Trojan horses um for people who are unable to face certain truths or paint things in black and white or in the good bad like binary paradigm. Food and music allows people to be like, hey, does this move you or does this connect you? Are you curious about where this sound comes from? Are you curious where this food comes from? Does it provide some type of understanding? Are you curious? Do you want to learn more about it um, from messaging? I mean, we were talking before, Chef was telling me about this beer that she's drinking by. Um, uh, what it? Where, hold it up again. Yeah, run by um, queer women brewers. And you're like, oh, wh- what is it called again?
5: It's Almanac Brewery, but this one is called The
4: Prince of Demons. The Prince of Demons. And then we're like, oh, are there a lot of women in brewing? Oh, there's not like, and just we, I mean, that's just how our brains work for, because we're kind of, we can ask those questions, but it like allows for conversation in that way. I mean, music and activism is like hand in hand, like every anti-war song ever um, or identity um, or Tao for your new record about your own personal struggle with identity and your heritage, which is really beautiful um, in the way in that you've, addressed it um, is just really stunning. I think both of them can be done either way. You can just be like, oh, like, let me find out these things on my own terms. So I think if you choose the right food and the right music to convey the message and if Biden can do that um, and pick artists in the same way that they go after like the clothing that first lady wears, they do the food and music, it allows for new conversations in like easy, almost bite-sized ways.
3: Darren, did you
4: wanna add anything? Yeah, I mean, to dovetail what Greg said, I think that um, Trump had a famous photo with fast food as a celebratory dinner uh, for college athletes. I think it'd be very different if he had someone like a Kwame come and cook and talk about the heritage there. But to be honest, look no further than our two panelists here about how food and music can result in activism and conversation cow with your new record and temple you know pretty with the farm that you're working on like if that isn't two examples of how these two disciplines spark conversation to get people thinking about how they get involved and that creation and actions are political now more than ever i don't know what else is
3: perfectly said Uh, a question for anyone what is the best way to ensure the food we buy isn't causing turmoil or even harm for someone along the supply chain
5: I guess I'll take that one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, first and foremost, like there's ways to be informed. Um, Grist uh, is a really great, grist.org is a great um, environmental food um, blog um, that I follow. Um, civil action as well as another one or civil eats. That's what it is. Um, and, and then I think there's a lot of things that you just got to kind of think about for a minute. Um, you know, it's sort of like when there was that big expose in the New York Times about, um, I think it was mostly Vietnamese, but Asian women in the mani pedi salons in New York City, and that there was all this exploitation. Oh, yeah. and, I, and then I remember like, some, you know, chef friend of mine writing something like, you got a mani pedi for like $12. And it took a New York Times article for you to think about the fact that there's exploitation going on, like, come on, like, <laughs> I think the person said something like be please, <laughs> but like to, to the point is sort of like when you see something that cheap, like sourcing quality ingredients, paying your employees properly in a safe environment and delivering that food to people, whether that's on a plate or in a box or what have you is not cheap. It's, it's human labor, whether you're talking about the farm worker or the dishwasher. Or the delivery driver. So anytime you're getting that at what feels like a steal, someone is getting harmed along the way. You are benefiting because someone along that chain has been exploited or the environment has been exploited or both. So the, you know, I think that like a lot of it is educating yourself and asking questions. And then I think a, some of it is just like, just stop and think and have some common sense about like, how is it possible that this is that cheap? and ask the right questions or just like maybe don't make that choice because you know anything that you buy that feels like oh wow this is really cheap for this you know whatever like fish and chips like it's probably some like farmed whatever crazy fish from some place where people were exploited um i mean yeah there's a lot of that when it comes to seafood and whatever whatever the situation is, whether it's farm workers or seafood or the dishwasher, like someone is being exploited if you're getting something for something that feels like
4: uh, a steal or just like really cheap. Thank it,
3: you. Oh, go it, ahead,
4: Darren. Just one thing to add on that, and I know we brought this up before, is that sometimes people don't have the luxury of a, being able to spend an exorbitant amount of money on food. Um, but there are, if you dig into the government, there are crazy farm subsidies. There are a lot of programs to help feed people. And those need to be re-examined now more than ever as well. Um, you know, food scarcity, food dependency, hunger in America, hunger throughout the world. It doesn't have to exist. Like there is more than enough food to, to feed people. And there's more than enough money there. And, you know, there's enough money to get people fresh foods, fresh vegetables, you know, EBT at green markets, farmers markets, things like that. And it's just a reexamination of who we prop up and who we support and education as well. Um, nutrition, that fundamental understanding of what's good for you and healthy, and not just cheap and quick. It's a whole ecosystem. Um, And so once you start diving into that, you know, sometimes you can blame people like, you know, fast food or things like that. But like, that is a systematic end of giant federal issues that you see playing out in real time right now. And if you can attack the whole, I mean, look, I'll put it this way. McDonald's thought that they could get more people to eat salads and that was more profitable, you know, and, you know, whole grains. They wouldn't serve another burger. You know, they're not driven. It's not driven by like, we need to get these burgers out. It's not like the head of McDonald's now is like, if I, my core is selling burgers, if they could sell, you know, whole, you know, oatmeal or fresh fruit, they would do it. But that's not profitable. Those aren't the systems aren't set up. So I think that's another thing that might be silver lining in this is like reexamining our food ways, re-examining our relationship with that. And just, I remember when Greg and I drove across Canada, this was 2000 and they were doing these test pilots of salads in McDonald's and it was like this healthy wave. And I was like, Oh, I hope it comes to America. I was like, Oh, cheap salads that actually aren't that bad. And it never made it, but it was just like, you could just see that it's just profit and product driven. And if health is at the center of it, it's a win for everyone.
3: That's perfectly said and and a great way to leave us off, Uh, Darren. I wanted to also reiterate the point that many people think hunger is about too many people and too little food, but that Mm. is not the case. At AXEM, we know that hunger is about power. Ultimately, its roots lie in inequalities and access to resources and opportunities. Right now, our our world produces enough food for everyone, but approximately one out of every nine of us will still go to bed hungry tonight. So I want, and we are over time, so thank you everyone who has stayed on so far. We are about uh, to post a link to Oxfam's donation page in the chat box right now. Please consider joining us or continuing support of our efforts, either in a big or a small way. Your contribution will go to help people around the world facing injustice, support communities working to lift themselves out of poverty and aid families seeking safety. I wanna thank everyone for joining us tonight. I wanna thank Tao, Chef, Preeti, Karen and Greg, major thanks to Omnivore Books, Fade On, and the whole Snacky Tunes team. Remember to check out all of their work on their social media if you wanna drop it into the Q&A box, feel free to. Uh, really continue to support these amazing, amazing independent artists in every way shape or form it's been such an honor to be with you all tonight in community and in conversation and i hope that we can get together soon and do this again uh thank you to everyone for joining us if we were not able to get to your questions we'll hopefully follow up with you offline and have a great and wonderful monday evening thanks everybody
4: all right thank you thank you thank you thank bye.
2: you so much bye y'all Bye. we talk about food we talk about music, music. with musical